about doubt, because I know that that is something that, that we need to talk about more, especially in the church, because I think that we are seeing more and more um, people having questions and doubts and feeling um, comfortable personally having those questions and doubts, but maybe not sure if the church can handle them and if their faith has room enough for them. Um, when I was uh, working in the kids' ministry, when I first got to Lover's Lane, uh, so many times I would have parents reach out to me. I get an email, kind of like one that I actually got this past week, uh, asking for me if I could meet with their kid um, because, you know, as young as five years old, beginning to have questions about Jesus and is Jesus really we- real and, you know, it, what if I don't believe this stuff, mom and dad, oh no. And, and the parents kind of freaking out, wondering, oh my gosh, is my kid the only kid in the universe that doubts Jesus? And I'm like, no, you know, like, relax, calm down, <laughs> like, this is okay, this is normal. Um, And so I know that it's a point of anxiety for a lot of people. I know that maybe you walked into church this morning and uh, honestly what you brought with you were doubts and questions. And maybe you're not sure that you believe any of this stuff. And you're wondering uh, if there's room enough in this Christian faith for you to have those kind of doubts, if there's room enough in this church for you to have those kind of doubts. So let's talk about this morning. Let's talk about that through the lens of maybe one of my top five favorite characters in the Bible. I think every character's in my top five, um, but I'm going to say he is this morning. Uh, Thomas, or as we, you know, unfairly remember him as doubting Thomas, right? Poor Thomas. He doubts one time, one, one time, one time. Doubting Thomas, rest of your life, rest of eternity. That's who you are. You're doubting Thomas. Never mind that all the disciples doubted, right? No, 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 no. Thomas is the one, right? We're going to look at the story that, that gives him that name, and uh, I hope that we can understand this story as a beautiful story, because that's what it is. It's the way that the Gospel of John chooses to end the story of really who Jesus is and claims to be. It is the climax of uh, the Gospel of John in many ways. In fact, after the, doubt, after the Doubting Thomas story, John says there's really nothing more that needs to be said. And then he writes another chapter, because that's just how John is. But uh, he says nothing really else needs to be said. This, this is... Uh, how you can come to find faith in Jesus is through the story of Doubting Thomas. It's a short story. It's only a handful of verses long. And in order to, to really understand it best, let's sort of understand who Thomas is and, and where the story is located. So uh, Thomas is one of the 12 disciples. Um, he is mentioned a couple of times in the Gospel of John before this. Um, notably, there's a, there's a mention of him in John chapter 11, where we get sort of an idea of John's, uh, or of Thomas's uh, character, sort of his personality. Uh, it's during the story of Lazarus, and when Jesus says that he's going to go back uh, to, to see about Lazarus, who had died a few days earlier, uh, three days earlier, uh, as Jesus is preparing to go, um, Thomas, I guess, thinks that maybe Jesus going there won't turn out well. He thinks, you know, well, Lazarus died. Maybe there's hostile people there. And, and so, Thomas reveals himself to be an interesting mix of both uh, a pessimist and courageous, right? which is a very odd mixture in a person. And yet, I think there's a lot of pessimistic, courageous types out there in the world. Because what Thomas says is this. He says, let's go die with him, Right? Let's go and die with him. Now, that's a weird statement to make because Thomas doesn't say, let's go and protect him. Let's go and have victory. Let's go and resurrect. No, let's go die, but with him, you know. So he thinks it's going to turn out poorly, and yet he's the one that says, let's do it. Let's go there. So, so Thomas is an interesting character. 
Um, he's bold, he's brash, but he's also got questions. At one point, Jesus tells him that, you know, I'm going somewhere that you're going to follow. And Thomas says, but how are we going to know where you're going? Jesus is talking about the resurrection in heaven, but he's speaking kind of cryptically. And Thomas goes, how are we going to know where you're going if you won't tell us? We don't know where you're heading. You know, Thomas is a thinker. He's real cerebral, and, and, and he needs his questions answered. So that's who Thomas is. But we need to remember that Thomas is a person of great courage and boldness when the time calls for it as well. Now, in terms of where this story comes, this is after the resurrection. So, in the Gospel of John, the way the resurrection story is told is this, that, that Mary Magdalene uh, goes and, and checks on the tomb to check on Jesus, and, and she discovers that Jesus has risen. These two angels greet her and say, no, he's risen. And so, for a moment in time, Mary, right, this is a whole other sermon for a whole other day, Mary, a woman, is like the Christian church. She has the gospel witness. Like, that's a really cool story that I can't get into today very much, but that's just cool. So, she goes and she goes and tells the disciples. Uh, that Jesus is alive. And, and when I say the disciples, she tells all but a couple of disciples. Judas obviously is not there for very obvious reasons. And then Thomas is not there because he's honestly in a very melancholic state. He's, he's clearly kind of depressed. He's separated himself from the disciples. He doesn't want to be around everybody else. Um, he's sort of isolating himself. So all the other disciples are together. Mary goes and tells them, and they're like, yes, great, awesome. And they go to tell Thomas and Thomas says, well, we'll see what he says. So that's where this scene comes, is when the disciples, they've been told that Jesus has risen. Um, they've seen Jesus uh, appear before them, and, and now they're going to tell Thomas about this great news. This is going to be in John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. We're going to have the NRSV version on the screens for you. And before we do that, let's say a word of prayer as we invite God into this time. Gracious God. This morning, we come in with many things in our hearts, but I'm almost certain that everybody in this room has at least one question they'd like to ask you. I'm almost certain that everybody in this room has some kind of doubt about their faith at any given time, something they wish they could scratch out a little more, something they wish that you could just part the heavens and speak a clear word to, something that they wish they could just get a clear answer about. And, and so, God, we bring those doubts and those questions to you this morning. And we bring them into the story of your apostle Thomas. We ask that you would make what may be a familiar story to many of us, make it new for us. Allow us to meet Thomas again for the first time, to hear what it is that he has to say, and to show us that he is not someone to be ridiculed or misremembered as a doubter, but actually someone who had incredible faith and who had an incredible experience with you that we get to share in thanks to your word. God, make these words come alive for us this morning off of the pages of our Bibles and off of the screens and into our hearts. They might change the way that we live. In your sons, and we pray. Amen. All right, let's read this word this morning. It says, uh, but Thomas, who was called the twin, uh, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, as they show up, they go find him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand into his side, 
I will not believe. So what he's referencing there, you may not know, he's referencing the, the wounds that Jesus would have borne from the crucifixion. His nails would have been, or his hands would have been nailed to the cross, and there was a spear thrust through his side. So that's what Thomas is referencing. I want to put my finger in the holes where the nails were, and I want to put my hand in the hole where the spear was. Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. He goes on to say, or the gospel goes on to say this, a week later, his disciples were again in the house. So Thomas has gone a whole week of not having this question answered. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and, and, and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. The word of God for the people of God, let us say, thanks be to God. I love this scripture. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. I think it's a scripture that maybe is more important in the 21st century than it has ever been. Um, and I want us to, to talk about this scripture in a few different ways, a few things that, that rise up for me in this conversation of doubt and, and why this scripture is so meaningful for my life personally. I want to share that with you today. Um, so I want to start by, by, by sharing this. So when I was in college, like many people, that's when uh, serious questions about my faith arose. You know, when, when you're a child, even through confirmation, even through your teenage years, you, you kind of have this faith that I call an inherited faith. It's like, it's like your parents wrapped something up for you and, and handed it to you. That's how a lot of us who were raised in the church, you know, we sort of get this faith that's handed to us, and, and we take good care of it, and we do love Jesus, and we do believe these things, but then we go to college, and we start to take it apart a little bit, and we begin to wonder if we can put it back together. Anybody else have a similar experience in college like I did? That, that's when those sort of experiences started happening for me. And, and a really cool thing happened while I was in college. Um, the Christian music uh, scene was really taking off in a, in a cool direction. There were a lot of young artists that were doing things with modern Christian music that hadn't been done before, and they were writing lyrics that, that we hadn't really had before, you know, because we were used to having songs of praise, you know, up until then, you know, it had like Shout to the Lord, which is a great song, you know, um, but, you know, all these songs that were really about, you know, yay, Jesus, yay, God, I'm so in love with God, I'm so in love with Jesus. And then there was this guy named David Crowder who came along. And David Crowder kind of changed my understanding of worship and what it meant to worship God. He wrote this song in his very first album when he was just a, a worship leader for a church full of Baylor University students down in Waco, Texas. Now he is like as big as it gets in Christian music. Um, and, and he wrote this song for his first album called All I Can Say. And it was, if you can call it a hit, it was the hit off of that, that album. It was a hit with me personally because what it was was a song all about the doubts and the questions that we have for God. Because the lyrics go something like this. It's, it's talking about, you know, Lord, I'm tired. I'm so tired from walking. I feel darkness creeping into my life. You know, I'm wondering where you are. I don't feel like you can hear me or see me. Don't you see me crying? Don't you hear me calling out your name? And then there's this chorus that says, this is all that I can say right now. And this is all that I can be. Um, this is all that I can give. And what, what he's saying is that sometimes all we have to offer God is not a song of praise. You know, in a moment we'll collect an offering, we'll receive an offering for the church. 
You know, sometimes we don't have a lot of resources to give. Sometimes we don't even feel like giving our blood, sweat, and tears in service. Sometimes we walk into church and all we have to offer God is, is not a, yay, Jesus, but a, where are you? I don't feel you right now. I don't sense you. I don't feel like you're seeing me or hearing me. And this song was honest about that. And as a kid in college who was trying to rebuild my faith, like, I loved that someone was talking about that, that sometimes that's all we can give. That's all we can say. And there's this beautiful bridge in the verse where it makes a turn, and, it talks, and he talks about how, of course, you know, God was there the whole time. It was only in retrospect, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. He gets through this season, and he realizes God was there all these different ways. But in the moment, all he could offer God was, where are you? What's happening? What's going on? I don't see you. I don't sense you. Thomas, I think, is, is very much the same way. You know, when the disciples come to him and they tell him, hey, the, you know, Jesus is alive. You know, I'm sure they're thinking that he's going to respond with like, yay, what party? Where, who do I make the checkout to for the new church plant? You know, like, I'm sure that's what they think he's going to do. And yet Thomas responds with what? I haven't seen him. I mean, you say he's alive, but I haven't seen him. I, I need to see the marks in his hands. In fact, I need to feel the marks in his hands. I need to feel the stab in his side. You tell me Jesus is alive. I don't know that he's alive. All Thomas can offer there is not words of praise. It's not a shout of joy. It's not, you know, an offering for the new church plant in Jerusalem. It is doubts and questions. And so then as you're reading this, you might think, because if you've, here's sort of the cool way that our Bible is arranged canonically, is that if you've read the earlier Gospels, especially Gospels like Mark, you know, Jesus gets really frustrated by lack of faith in that Gospel especially, you know. Um, in that one, when, when they lack faith, he'll just sort of go, ugh, why, how much longer am I going to have to put up with this faithlessness? Ugh, you know, you guys have such little faith. Oh, ye of little faith, like the song that we just heard. And so you might think when Thomas offers these doubts, you know, I mean, here, the, the, the Lord is risen, you know, the Messiah is alive, and Thomas offers him nothing but doubts and questions. You might think that Jesus is going to bust in and say, how dare you? How dare you, Thomas? You followed me for three years, and you're doubting me now? How dare you? You know what? You're out. You're just as bad as Judas. Get out of here. You're not one of the 12 anymore. You're not one of my friends anymore. How dare you doubt me? Oh, ye of little faith. And yet, is that what Jesus does? First, he says, peace be with you. And then he says, here, Thomas. You need my hands? Here they are. You need my side? Here's my side. Go ahead. Go ahead. Jesus meets Thomas's doubts and questions not with judgment or rejection, but with grace and with mercy and with love and with compassion. I mean, that, that's the Jesus that I know. That's the Jesus that I know has greeted me from my days of in, as a teenager when questions first popped into my mind to my years in college when I really was reassembling my faith to years in seminary when my faith was challenged a lot to even today to this past week when I've had new questions about and doubts about God. Every time Jesus meets me with grace and with mercy, not with rejection or judgment. And so the, the first thing I know about Thomas's story and what it reveals to me about God's character is this. When we offer our doubts to God, we will not be judged or rejected. God is big enough to handle our doubts and our questions. 
In fact, I think God wants to meet us precisely where those doubts and those questions live. So Thomas is met by Jesus with his hands and with his side, and, and there's this really amazing physical interaction that takes place between Thomas and Jesus that nobody else shares. And that might kind of oog you out if you're someone who gets queasy, all this talk of me, like, you know, touching the, the nail holes in his hands and his side, like, I'm sorry. If you pass out, if your neighbor passes out, like, you know, flag down somebody, we'll, we'll get the ambulance here or something. But uh, it, I'm going to talk about that for a moment because I think it's important. Because what, it re- what that reveals to me, that all this talk of, of Thomas needing to touch the holes in his hands and needing to touch the hole in his side, what that reveals to me is that Thomas wants a real faith and not simply a sentimental one. It makes me wonder if I want a sentimental faith or a real faith in my own life. And what do I mean by those two words, sentimental faith and real faith? I think a lot of the disciples at that moment were really happy with the sentimental faith. They were told, Jesus is alive. And they're like, yes. You know, but what does that mean, right? Jesus is alive. And we say that every single Easter. And a lot of us feel really good hearing those words, and we, we feel really good singing those words, and we feel really good um, believing just those words, and, and, and that to me is the definition of a sentimental faith. It's, it's a faith that looks good and, and feels good and sounds nice. It's the kind of faith that, that when, you, when you read the words, it just, just makes you feel warm inside, but it's about this thin. It's the kind of faith that you can put those words up on a nice little wall hanging and hang it in your house and look at it every day. You can see, I can do all things in, through Christ who strengthens me. You know, doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that feel so good? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know that Paul wrote that when he was in the middle of being imprisoned and tortured and probably going to die? And he's saying, I can suffer everything because Jesus strengthens me. And it's on your kitchen, you know. <laughs> yes! Claim that victory, Right? We don't think about that when we see those words, because a lot of us, we like a sentimental faith. We want a faith that makes us feel good, that looks good, that sounds nice. Jesus is alive. There's one disciple that asks what that really means, and it's Thomas. Thomas does something profound. He says, I want to touch the holes in his hands, and I want to touch the hole in his side. The Gospel of John is the only place in the Gospels that makes it explicitly, abundantly clear that what we have in the resurrection is not simply a spiritual resurrection. See, when, when Thomas hears, Jesus is alive, you know, he might be thinking, are y'all saying the spirit of Jesus? Like, hope is alive. Oh, well, la-di-da, right? Thomas is kind of a pessimist. Oh, great. Hope and joy is alive. I'm going to go back into my dark house and, and sulk. I don't want to hear about that. That's a sentimental faith. Thomas wants to know that the body of Jesus is alive. And he wants to know that the crucifixion is real. And the Gospel of John makes it abundantly clear that Jesus did not just rise in spirit. And this is where my more progressive sisters and brothers lose me in their interpretation of Scripture because they would say, well, I don't think, you know, I kind of have a hard time with the whole body resurrection thing. I don't think that really happened. I go, are you trying to edit the Gospel of John? Because John's trying to make really clear, no, no, no. Like, the body is alive. He Thomas touches the holes in his hands, and that's important. Why? Why is that important? I think Thomas may have loved and understood Jesus more than any of the other disciples. Because when Thomas asks to touch the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, I think what Thomas is revealing is that he understands what just happened on the cross. 
I think Thomas knew that he wasn't a perfect person. I think Thomas knew that he had a lot of shortcomings, that he was a cynic and a skeptic and a pessimist. And I think when Thomas heard that Jesus was alive, he didn't want someone to make him feel better. He didn't want some sort of sentimentalism that felt good in the moment. He wanted to meet his Savior again and say, did what just happened really happen? Did you really go through that for me? Is the crucifixion really real? Did you really give your life for me? Do you still bear the wounds of what happened on that cross? Because, because I need to know that that is real. It's not enough for me to feel like a good person inside. It's not enough for me to feel nice and warm that hope is alive. I need to know that Jesus actually lived and died for me. And that he lives again. And so Thomas is willing to go back to that place of woundedness. He's willing to go back and touch those wounds that were made possible by all the disciples' failures. None of them wanted to acknowledge the fact that they all failed Jesus in his route to the cross. He's willing to go back to that place because he needs to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what happened really happened and that Jesus really saved his life. I think that's profound. I think Thomas wants a real faith and not a sentimental one. A sentimental faith looks good and feels nice, but a real faith touches wounds and changes us. If you are willing to get to know the real Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ bears the wounds of the cross. The real Jesus Christ understands what it meant to save your life and my life and our lives together. The real Jesus Christ will invite you into that space and will not allow you to leave anything but transformed. And Thomas wants that kind of a faith. Is he still doubting Thomas? See, I know that Thomas has changed that experience of having a real faith in Jesus because he then goes on to say something that you may have read a dozen or more times as you've read the Gospel of John in your life. Maybe you've read this story before, and I guarantee you've skipped right over it because I did too, so many times. I had no idea how powerful this statement that he makes is. John sa- or Thomas says, after he touches immediately, he touches the holes in his hands, he touches the hole in his side, and he looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God, it has an exclamation point, so you know he's really passionate, my Lord and my God, and you might think, what is the big deal about that? We call Jesus Lord and God every single Sunday, we sing about that every single week, what's so special about that statement? The words that Thomas uses is kurios, meaning Lord in Greek, kurios, and theos, meaning God. Those two words had never been assigned to Jesus previously in the gospel. Peter had called Jesus the Son of God. They'd all worshipped, they'd all sort of come to the conclusion that he was the Messiah at times. But nobody except Thomas says that Jesus is not just the Son of God, is not just the Messiah. He is those things, but he is, in addition to that, he is God, God's self. My Lord and my God. It is the strongest proclamation of faith in the Gospels, and it comes from doubting Thomas. Peter doesn't say it. John doesn't say it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, none of them say it. Thomas, doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God. Because he hadn't just encountered a sentimental feel-good kind of faith, he had touched the wounds and he knew what Jesus had done for him.
And he knew that Jesus was more than what any of them had anticipated, that Jesus was God, God's self, right in front of them. Thomas's exclamation, my Lord and my God, it reminds me, this is true in my own life, that the strongest faith in the Gospels is born out of doubt. It's Thomas's questions and doubts that lead him to the strongest faith in the Gospels. And in my own life, those questions and those doubts that I've asked God, that I've wrestled with, not for a day or for a week, but for years, those have borne the greatest strengths in my faith. Those places of pain, those wounds that I don't want to deal with when I finally deal with them and I, and I ask God, what is this about and how are you redeeming this? When I finally get that answer, that is where my faith is founded, not on the feel-good sentimental stuff. There's this interesting statement that Jesus makes after Thomas says this, my Lord and my God. Jesus says something, in the NRSV, it, it looks sort of like this. It, 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 Jesus says something like, um, you know, do not doubt, but believe, or don't doubt, have faith. A lot of times in our translations, that word doubt is used there. Don't doubt, have faith. And so you may be saying, Scott, all this time you're trying to make doubt sound better, but Jesus says don't doubt. No, he doesn't. If you go back and you, and you look at the the Greek that it's written in, there's this interesting word that's used. There's a word for doubt in Greek, and it's not used there. What's used there, it, it, there's two words. Uh, this, the statement sounds like this, me gino apistos ala pistos. Me gino apistos ala pistos. Now, two of those words sound really similar, right? Apistos and pistos. Pistos means faith or belief. Apistos, a, meaning the negative, means unfaith or unbelief. There's a word that means doubt. That's not the word that's used there. And you might be saying, Scott, why are we talking about Greek right now? What does it have to do with anything? My point is this, is that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's unfaith. Jesus says, stop unfaithing and start faithing. It's weird. There's not a perfect translation, which is why so many of our Bibles say, stop doubting, start believing. It's an easier way to phrase it. But he's saying, stop doing the unfaith, and, and start faithing. What does he mean by that? What that means to me, I've learned this in my own life, is that whenever you approach sort of a doubt or a question or a concern, there are kind of two roads to go. And one road says, I don't want to believe this, right? And the other road says, I do want to believe this. It, my understanding in, in my short life here on earth is that generally whichever road you pick, you're going to get to that destination, right? I mean, we live in a, age, a day and age of, uh, you know, confirmation bias, right? You read something online, you go, I don't want to believe that. Well, there's another 14 blogs that will say, oh, don't believe that. Or if you read something, you go, oh, I want to believe that. There's another 15 blogs that say, oh, yeah, you should believe that, you know. Whenever we encounter a question, a concern, a doubt, we kind of have two roads to go. We can either unfaith or we can faith. Now, does that mean that we should just shut off our brain and just believe? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, in our wrestling with that question, that doubt, is your goal to unfaith? Because if your goal is to unfaith, then that's probably where you're going to end up. If you don't want to believe, you're probably not going to believe. There's a million ways you don't have to believe. And yet, if you want to believe, there's a path towards that as well. 
I don't think Thomas, when he's told that Jesus is resurrected, doesn't want to believe it. I think Thomas wants to believe it more than any of the others. I think Thomas wants to believe it more than life itself. And so he's willing to wrestle with it. He's willing to go to those lengths because he wants that question answered for the sake of his faith, not to destroy it. So my question for us is, when we encounter these doubts, these questions, when we struggle with our faith, are we approaching them on the path of of unfaithing or on the path of faithing? Because you'll probably end up at your destination. And it might take weeks, it might take years, it might take a lifetime. There are some questions we will wrestle with all our life long. And we may still have that same question when we go up to heaven. Trust me, I've got my list. God and I are going to have some barbecue and chat on the porch for a while. But I know in my life, whichever path I set myself on is really important. And I think what what Jesus recognizes in Thomas is that he's right on that cusp, this really pessimistic but brave person is just right on that cusp of turning the corner and starting to go towards unfaith and starting to want to decide that I don't really want to believe all this. And he's saying, Thomas, you got to stay with me. There are going to be things that you won't understand. There are going to be things that are going to frustrate you. There are going to be things that make you mad. But you got to stay with me. And I promise I'll be with you, and I promise I'll show up when you need me most. So what does this mean for my own life? We're, we're coming to a close now. All this discussion of, of doubt, all this unpacking of Thomas's story. What does it mean for the way that I'm going to wake up tomorrow and continue to wrestle with things that I've been wrestling with this past week, this past month, this past year? I think it's really important that we allow our doubts to be question marks and not periods. I think it's really important that we allow our doubts to be question marks and not periods. A doubt that's a period says, I don't believe in God or I don't think that God is real because blank. It's a statement. It's declarative. It's, I've made a judgment. This is what I think, and I'm not going to budge. God's not real because I I suffered this. God's not real because I see this evil in the world. God's not real, or I I don't think God is real because of X, Y, and Z. A question kind of doubt says, God, I see the evil, or I see the suffering. I experience this pain, and I'm wondering, where are you? It's the same kind of questions that David Crowder asked in his song. Where are you? I can't hear you. Where are you? I can't see you. Where are you? What are you doing here? What is is your plan for this? Where's the redemption in this? How can you show up? Where are the wounds? How can I feel something real? How can you take what sounds nice and make it something real for me? God, can you show up there? Question mark. Can you answer me this, God? Question mark. Can you redeem this, God? Question mark. Can you make it real? Question mark. That doesn't mean that we get to ask a question and get an answer the next morning, right? That's happened to me like once in my life, once. And I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm not the best, but I'm pretty good. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm doing okay. And I've gotten one, right? One. Okay? It doesn't work like that. Sometimes we ask these questions all life long. But what it does is it keeps us coming back into relationship with a real Jesus, with a real God who has real care and real love for our real questions and our real doubts. So let our doubts be question marks and not periods. I hope this week as you go home, you feel comfortable sending your questions to me or Reagan. I hope you feel comfortable sharing questions with your family. If your kids have questions, don't be freaked out by that. I'm meeting with a young man this week to talk about his questions. I have no idea what they are, and I can't wait to hear them. I'm sure they are awesome. 
but I'm so glad that what he's going to bring is questions and not statements. And I hope that all of us can go into this week knowing that there will be seasons of our life when we feel like Thomas. And we're in our house all by ourselves, and we're wondering if what everybody else is saying is true. And and we don't want it just to sound nice or look good, but we want it to make a real change in our lives. And so I hope all of us can be doubting Thomases. I hope all of us can ask God to meet us in the flesh. I hope all of us can ask God to show us the holes in his hands and the spear in his side and say, here I am. Here I am. Look, touch, see, feel. I'm here for you. And I've always been here for you and I'll be here for you again. And if all you have to offer me is doubts and questions, I'll receive them and return to you mercy and grace and love. It's okay to bring your doubts to God. God will meet you there every single time. And during the arc of your life, those answers you need will show up in unexpected places. As long as we're faithing and wrestling with this real Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for being a God who doesn't demand blind obedience, who doesn't demand that we never fear or we never doubt, who asks that we could live a life without doubt or fear, but who you know that we can't. You know that we can't. You know that we're going to have questions, that we're going to have concerns, that we're going to have doubts, we're going to have anger, and sometimes that's all we're going to have to offer you. So God, we're thankful that you are a gracious and merciful God who receives those with open arms, who receives us with open hands, who asks us to reach out and to touch and to know that you are real beyond a shadow of a doubt so that our lives might be changed, so that we might live a life on fire for you and your good news. All of this we pray in the name of your Son, in his holy and precious resurrected name. Amen.